Uh, the first reading today can be found um, on page five of your orders of service. It's from Ecclesiastes chapter three, starting at verse one. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever is has already been, and what will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. The second reading is from uh, James chapter 4, starting at verse 11. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbour? Now listen, you who say, tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do, need, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your own arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Thanks God. Be Let's pray. Father, if, oh, the kids, high school kids, high school, off you go. 
Where you go with Naomi today? Am I allowed to tell the surprise, Naomi? They're going off to Starbucks to do Bible study <laughs> and drink hot chocolate. Great news. Shall I pray? Now, you want hot chocolate now, don't you? You have to wait half an hour. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, if you will it, we will live. Uh, if you will it, we will do this or that. Uh, Father, help us to believe you, to trust you, to save us from pride. Show us the way of Jesus Christ. Show us your will. In the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen. So we make plans. That's what humans do. They make plans because we have a sense of the future. So one of the things that separates us from animals, we've got a sense of the future. We can place ourselves in today. We can place ourselves in tomorrow. Isn't that amazing? We can imagine being in this city or that city. Your parents made plans for you. Some of them came to fruition. Your boss makes plans now. Some of them are frustrating. Young travellers will always make plans. Do you make plans for your working life? Do you make plans for your travel life? Do you make plans for your home life? Probably got plans for this afternoon, don't you? And you've probably got a fair idea of what will happen tomorrow. I can look at my diary and I can imagine, and, you know, with some level of, uh, of um, certainty, the sorts of things that are going to happen tomorrow. This morning, our Sunday is all about Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and what it means to make plans, especially with respect to business. Sydney Siders are pretty big at business, and we're great planners. I don't think you can get more City of Sydney than what James says in, in chapter 4, verse 13. Follow with me, it's on page 6 of your orders of service. You can't get more Sydney than this. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to Melbourne or Singapore... We'll spend a year there, maybe two, maybe a week, and we'll carry on business, and we'll make money. I mean, who doesn't say that? Or, or at least a version of that. This message is for any one of us who's ever made a plan. That's 100% of us. So James has my attention. What does he say to those of us who make plans? Look at verse 14. Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. I'm sorry to tell you. You don't know. He says, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And you're like, I was hoping to come to church this morning to hear something cheery. What, are, what, I, what am I? I'm a mist. Here today, vanishes tomorrow. I am, if I can use the Hebrew Scriptures, I am but dust, and to dust I shall return. A point Ecclesiastes makes over and over again. Now, that's a little dark for some, and in your heart right now, you're scrambling. But for others, it's a recipe for joy and humility in Jesus Christ our Lord. 
This morning, I want to speak against human pride and speak for a God-inspired humility. It's easy to think we're invincible. Harder the older we get. It's easy to think that our plans will come about. But what would it look like if we knew, we knew, we really knew that we were missed? That we don't really know what will happen tomorrow. We don't, really. I want to offer a way forward through natural human arrogance and offer a door to humility. A door I'm looking forward to walking through more often. In chapter 4, verse 10, that's a typo on page 7 of your orders of service. In chapter 4, verse 7, the immediate context of our passage today is that we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. His mighty hand, we're to humble ourselves, and if we humble ourselves, He will lift you up. Good news. What does that look like specifically and practically with respect to people, firstly, from verses 11 and 12, and secondly, with respect to the plans we make in verses 13 to 17. Now, all of you rub shoulders with people and you make plans. So this is, this is a message for everybody, me included. So let's break those two apart. Firstly, what does this mean specifically and practically with respect to people, especially brothers and sisters? Look at verse 11 of James chapter 4. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister, or judges them, we'll come back to that in a moment, speaks against the law and judges it. In other words, you're trying to be God in that moment. You're acting like a God in that moment. James is giving us a, he's going to give us a reason not to slander other than a moralistic reason. The challenge here is to not slander or offer words designed to cut down souls and reputations, which would include, I imagine, gossip or judgmentalism. By the way, that happens all day, every day, and you see it. Toxic. James is saying to Christian communities, you've got to have an alternative life than the one that exists in the world. You've got to give up your slander and the gossip and the it's destroying the heart of your church, James says to them. It's a poison. Because it means that you are rising up above God Himself, making yourself above the law because everything has to revolve around you in that moment. You're the one who's deciding right from wrong. You've usurped God's right and you're standing over another. How will we give up this standing over another and destroying and slandering, etc.? Well, in our society, we tend to just say, well, give it up, just don't do it. It's not right anyway, you know. Um, just don't do it. Or we act out of self-interest. Um, um, you know, somehow it's hurting me. I mean, there's good reason for that. I, I get that. Or here's another way we, we deal with slandering. We choose platitudes. We say, if you can't say something nice... Don't say it at all. My mama told me that. Our world is not too deep, and I think sometimes two-dimensional. It's just uh, me and the, the person slandering me, us and them. James brings in a God dimension. He says, if you know you've got someone above you, it's going to moderate how you interact with the person near you. 
So he says in verse 11, when you judge the law, when you're the one deciding right and wrong, you're not keeping the law, you're not finding out what God believes and yielding to it, but rather you're sitting in judgment over it. And by the way, that's very easy to do, to sort of read the Bible and sort of sit over it saying, oh, I like that bit, but not that bit, and you know, this bit seems wise to me, but not that bit. But in the end, you're above God in that moment, is what James is saying. But he points out in verse 12, there is in fact only one lawgiver and judge, and you're not him. See the point? It's not you. There's only one who is able to save and destroy, save and destroy. His name is Jesus Christ, not you, which is why he says, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you? You think you can judge your neighbor? Is that you? He's saying, to the degree that you deeply know that God is judge, you won't attempt to be the judge. To the degree that you know that God is the one who sits over others, you won't be, you won't attempt to be the one who sits over others. Now, this, by the way, is brand spanking good news for those who've never heard this, for those who've been hurt. It's brand spanking good news as an antidote to the outrage in our culture. Online, someone's wrong and I'm right. See the and it's quite simple. Bring God into it. <laughs> and you say, um, God will judge the living and the dead. He's the judge. You don't need to be the judge here. Of course, when we judge others, we tend to get it wrong. We skew in favor of what is right for me. We don't and can't know the whole situation. We attribute motive when we can't know the human heart. And we act in self-defense, which according to James results in toxic behavior, slander, for example, gossip. These are the levers we tend to pull when we feel like we have none. The only thing we think we can do when we feel hurt. We use our words to search and destroy, to save and protect my reputation. It ends up, I believe, hurting the soul. Um, one writer said, in our appetite for gossip, we tend to gobble down everything before us, only to find, too late, that it is our ideals that we have consumed, and we've not been enlarged by the feasts, but only diminished the feasts of gossip that we think we're going to taste of the morsel. Similar sort of idea from Frederick Beekner. It's all on page one of your orders of service. This is one of my favorite quotes ever. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor the last toothsome morsel both of the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast for a king. The chief drawback is that you are Wolfing down, the one you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. But you bring God into this. This is a gift, a gift, a gift. If you know that God will judge, that will change how I'll live now. For example, I can be more gracious. Because God will judge fairly. I can love my enemies. 
Paul wrote, leave room for God's wrath. You don't have to take revenge. You can be at peace. Jesus said, turn the other cheek, and if I know that God will judge, I'm able to turn the other cheek, for God knows my cheek is bruised. And by the way, he also knows what it feels like to turn the other cheek. Look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus never asks us to do something that he doesn't do himself. I can be a little bit more robust, anti-fragile, I'm learning is the new word, a little more robust. Paul says to people who are like, you know, got a grievance against somebody, he actually says, you know, rather than um, take him to court, a brother to court, he says, wouldn't you have rather been wronged? Wouldn't it have been easier, better to be wronged? I can give up slander because God is my defender. But I have to trust in God's timing. Apostle Paul says, the day will bring it to light. You might have thought, why that first reading from Ecclesiastes? First, because the writer of Ecclesiastes says that your life is a veil, a mist. But that particular passage, at the very end of it, you'll notice, you know, I saw in the place of judgment, wickedness was there, the place of justice, wickedness was there. There's so many places in life where you think, this should be healthy, but it's actually toxic. And so the writer says, I said to myself in verse 17, it's okay. God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. There'll be a time for every activity and a time to judge every deed. I can be at peace. The day will bring it to light. It's what's so powerful about knowing that there's a future judgment. It's great news. Paul calls it my gospel in Romans chapter 2. Now, this passage in, in James doesn't mean, as it's often used in the media, and in particular in social media, when it says, don't, you know, judge not, um, meaning, you know, don't say anything to me about my life or my behavior. It doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean that you can't discern what is right from wrong according to the will of God and then act in grace and kindness. You can make a call that someone is in a dangerous position and they look at you and they say, judge not, didn't Jesus say? And you said, I'm not judging you, I'm just speaking to you. We're speaking together. That whole idea of judge not, um, you know, is an idea used against someone like Israel Folau. Um, you know, when, when judging somebody is, is when someone, um, someone calls you out, but you want to keep doing the thing you do, so you say, don't judge me. No, 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 no. In James, in chapter 5, verse 19, James talks about those who wander from the truth, encouraging others to bring him or her back. So we can discern we're not allowed to be the judge. The word to judge doesn't mean that you can't discern right from wrong, but rather it means that you do not determine right from wrong. But the more we move God from our lives, and more I am the self-referee for everything I do, I suddenly think, well, am I the judge here? There's no God, so it's just my thoughts. And then, you know, the world begins to unravel at that point. Slander is the sinner's attempt to be judge. Get some verbal justice. You get to shout someone down. But God is the one who determines right from wrong, and he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Judging others is above my pay grade. God judges a good God who knows motive, he knows the heart, he knows what's happened in a person's life and is the only one who can truly judge. This is Adam and Eve's problem in the Garden of Eden. 
They ate from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. That is, they made a bid for determining right from wrong, that they knew, and not God, that they could be the judges of what was good and right over God. And so from that moment, the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, you and me, from that day on have been consuming from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if I can put it this way, arguing and judging and you're right and you're wrong and you're right and you're wrong, I know and you don't, in workplaces, in homes and in nations ever since. But much of it has been curved in on self, however normal it feels. But it's time to eat from the tree of life. Jesus came to give us life. He came to die for my curved in on selfness. And Jesus rose again from the dead to show me the new life of being curved outward to others in service and love, of being curved upwards to God in worship and peace. He came to give me eternal life. He came to judge the living and the dead. Verse 12, there's only one lawgiver and judge, and you're not him, the one who is able to save and to destroy, Jesus Christ. So now, tomorrow morning, do not judge, rather seek human flourishing, discern what is right and wrong, discover the will of God, but seek the way of grace towards people. That's humility with respect to people. What about plants? Secondly, what about plants? You make plants? I looked at my iCal this morning, and I, you know when you, with your iPhone, you've got it on its side and you see the list of things, but you turn it off you know, to, land, to uh, landscape. And then suddenly everything moves and the colours are there and the amount of things I've got in my calendar. We all do it, right? Very, very simple. Um, I've got a team meeting at 9 o'clock, lunch with somebody, community group on Tuesday night. I'm off to Melbourne. Not me. You know. And when you make plans, you think about everything, and you can, you can see the emails, what date, what place, you know, oh, let's meet on Thursday, and someone, where are we going to meet, you know, what place, you think about timing, is it going to be an hour meeting, an hour and a half, half an hour, you think about what people ought to be in the room, and what plans, or what hopes you uh, plan to achieve out of, out of that meeting. That means James has got a bang on correct, can't help but feeling like James is steeped in the business world. Look at verse 13. Now listen, any one of you who's ever said, today or tomorrow, that's a date, we will go to this city or that city, that's a place, we'll spend a year there, that's the timing needed, to carry on business with people and make money in this circumstance, that's the plan. We make plans, and to be fair, I think it's fair to say that for a lot of us it goes something like this, I'll survive my teen years finish study in my 20s, might come back to it, but broadly, 20s, I'll finish my studies. I'll be married, married, you think, in my 30s. I'll raise the kids in, their for, in my 40s. I'll have my house paid for by my 50s, travel in my 60s, and enjoy the grandkids in my 70s. But for many of us, it just doesn't happen that way. It just doesn't happen that way. You know, I can sort of broadly know where I'll be tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, but me in 30 years? Zero. Actually, I don't know about tomorrow morning. 
let alone 30 years' time. Making plans seem so normal, and I think there's a default human position that says maybe it's because we feel so out of control that we somehow tell ourselves we've got to be in control. Making plans seems so normal that the average person doesn't even notice what goes along with it. It's like the air we breathe. Is there anything wrong with making plans? Of course not. Even if I told you not to, you're going to, because it's just smart to make plans. Nothing wrong with making plans, of course, per se, but James hits on a heart problem. He says this very normal thing you do, this making a meeting, booking a plane ticket, buying an apartment, making money, is potentially arrogant. Verse 16, as it is, you boast about your arrogant schemes. All such boasting, James writes, is evil. James says, at heart, many of us fundamentally forget God in our plans. We make no reference to Him, who's sovereign over all. We don't come before Him, the one who made us, who owns me, the one who sent His Son to die for me. We're not rich towards God's in our plans. Last week, we read Luke chapter 12, that stunningly comforting and challenging story that Jesus told about a man We've got a bumper crop. You know, God gave him a bumper, bumper crop, but he says, what will I do? He says, I'll tear down my old barns because the grain won't fit. I'll tear down my old barns and build bigger ones, and then I'll have plenty laid up for many years. That sort of plan seems so normal, so wise, so conservative. What could be wrong? For Jesus, he puts his finger on the heart the man in that story says, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barn, build bigger ones, and there I'll store my surplus grain, and I'll say to myself, self, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Now I can enjoy my leisure years. Jesus says that God said to him, you're a fool, and tonight your soul will be required of you. Tonight, not tomorrow. In the story, Jesus told, the man dies. Jesus says, then who will get what you have planned, you see, for yourself? Jesus says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves. They're curved in on self, but is not rich towards God. I think making plans without reference to God is a fundamental misunderstanding of your level of control why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. I love it when people say to me, I'm halfway through my life, and I think, really? How do you know? Young man in your 30s, how do you know you're not 99% through? You see the fundamental misunderstanding? Oh no, I'll live to 90. How do you know? None of us know. I've made plans for today, um, 8.30, 10.15. I'm taking the wedding couples at 2, 2.30 down at the garrison. I'll join them at 4 p.m. Listen to a cracking sermon on the same text. I'll find out what I got wrong at 4 p.m. And then I'll be up here at 6 p.m. And then I'm hoping to go running. Is my wife here? I'm hoping to go running uh, afterwards. And, you know, by and large, I can be pretty certain that my day will map out like that. I, 
you know, I think it'll probably happen. You know, text me at 10 o'clock tonight. And, and in a functioning, safe, prosperous Western democracy, by and large, the sorts of things you plan for tomorrow happen. Not the stuff you plan for 30 years, by the way. That doesn't happen, almost ever. But I can't tell what will happen today or tomorrow. Too many variables that I'm not sovereign over. See, knowing what will happen today or tomorrow, according to James, is above my pay grade. God knows, a good God knows. It's a fundamental misunderstanding, not just of my level of control, but who I am. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Many ways to think about this idea, but they all lead to the same conclusion that our lives are short, our earthly ones, but dust. Compared to the age of the universe, our lives are a blip. You know, we stand on the shoulders of giants, but let me tell you, those, si those giants are gnats. I'm a bit over 30 years out of school. It feels like yesterday, and if the diocese has its way, I'm retiring in about 16 or 17 years. And I've got to tell you, that amazes me. I know some of you are thinking, yeah, yeah, you used to bring chicken, you know. I just, that's gobsmacking to me. Gobsmacking. I mean, I'm thinking now, oh. <laughs> it's hard to think of your love as a blip, <laughs> but it's true. Here's the old test, you ready? Name three things about your grandfather's grandfather. Three things about your grandfather's grandfather. I reckon you could probably name three things about your great-grandpa, but not, not his father or his mother. So what do you do with this news? This morning, Sunday is about Monday. We're great planners. James offers us a, I love this, a stunningly simple alternative that transforms the heart. And the suddenly simple alternative is to say a few words, not as a mantra, but as a life lesson to the human heart. Look at verse 15. Please, page 6, have a look, open it up, underline it if you've got a pen there. Look at verse 15. Here's what he says. Instead, you ought to say, as opposed to today or tomorrow we'll go to this city or that city, instead you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live at all and do this or that. Now, these are not meant to be magic words. You're not supposed to say them as a nod to God. They're simple words, but when they're said regularly, they're like a seed that bears fruit in the human heart, and they begin to shape a life. I said to someone on the way out this morning, I've got a meeting plan. I'll see you Thursday at 3. She said, God willing. I'm like, ah. Oh! <laughs> Lord willing, God willing, God wills it, God is willing. Not magic words, but they reveal a way of life and dictate a way of life. And my advice to you will be to start saying it. You've got to choose your moments, but certainly to the brothers and sisters in the Lord, start saying it God, if God is behind it. If God wills it, I'll live. You know, if it's God's will, I'm halfway through my life. But it might be His will, another will. If the Lord wills it, we will breathe or, or, or have the business or make the money or get the house or the holiday. So this is a recipe for humility. 
I love again Ecclesiastes, time for this, time for this, time for that. God has made everything beautiful in its time, yet we can't fathom from beginning to end what God has done. We don't know where we'll be in 30 years' time, but He knows it. Writer of Ecclesiastes says, I know that everything God does will endure, and nothing can be added to it, and nothing taken away from it. God does this so that people will fear Him. Not look down on others, not look down on God sitting in judgment over Him, but looking up to Him and not down on others. C.S. Lewis got that lovely quote on page one. Pride is a ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. He goes on and says this, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. And I'm here this morning to say, look above you. There's someone above you. God himself, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. And that God has made himself known in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look above you to the gospel. And if you do, it will change and transform the way you do ordinary life. Today, Sunday, is about Monday. The gospel of Jesus Christ says there is a God who determines right from wrong. There is a God who has a will we don't follow. There is a God who determines the affairs of men and women. There is a God who can give life to your mortal body. And that God became a person in Jesus Christ. Dust he became. He's able to save you from your sins, from your curved in on selfness, from your pride, and to give you life forever. Here's the truth. You are not a mist. Not if the resurrection is true. Christ rose from the dead to give you life immortal. And he is the judge. He is the one who saves. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. It's time to yield, to trust him and to love him. And that will lead to peace. It'll lead to you relaxing a little bit more about people and about plans. You don't have to be the judge of others. You can seek human flourishing and gracious relationships. Christ rose from the dead. If you trust him, you'll live forever. I want to say age well. You know, you might only have a year. Age well this year. (laughs) Trust him with your hurts. Trust him with your calendar. Trust him with your life. Start saying, if God wills it, we will live. Start believing it. Let's pray.